Well, this is Christ's perfect life, seeing the beauty of Christ's life in light of the Old Testament. And by way of introduction, we can say it this way. In our daily lives, we often talk or hear about the word luck. When something good happens, we say, oh, well, you're so lucky. Or when people want something to go well, they say to you, good luck. Or when something happens that is out of our control, we would say, well, this happened by sheer luck. There are other words and phrases for this as well. We can talk about the word coincidence or something that is random or the phrase it just so happens. We have a lot of ways of expressing an idea that some things might happen unintentionally, without connection. It wasn't planned. It was arbitrary. However, if we are completely honest and true from a biblical perspective, we know that God is in control over everything. Ephesians 1 verse 11 reminds us of that. And in light of this, luck makes it seem, if we use this word, it makes it seem like God never really ordained something a certain way. He was surprised or it was an unexpected result relative to him. And so for this reason, luck our coincidence are absolutely anti-biblical concepts. They are anti-biblical concepts. In fact, the Bible goes out of its way to prove this. It uses terms that might convey to us something about randomness, something about luck, to show us that randomness never even exists at all. Let me say that again. The Bible will speak of randomness to prove to you that randomness never happens at all, that it does not exist. And let me just give you two examples of this, two examples of this. And here's one, the first examples from the book of Ruth, the book of Ruth. In Ruth chapter two, verse three, it records for us that Ruth just so happens, that's what the text says, it just so happens that Ruth stumbles upon the field of Boaz, a godly man. Now, we know what ensues from this. They not only fall in love, they not only get married, but in fact, that marriage continues the entire line of the seed. We now move to the line of David and ultimately to the line of Messiah. And so that meeting on the field, so to speak, advances God's plan. Now, do you really think that that was random? that God wasn't in control, that it was a sheer accident, that one wrong turn, God's plan stops, that you no longer have the Messiah? Do you really think at that moment, God who was in control relinquished it and said something like this? Well, let's see what happens now. Let's see if I can keep my promises or not. Or maybe he wasn't in control at all. And he said something like this, whoa, good job, Ruth, good move. I couldn't have planned it any better myself. Of course not. Throughout the entire flow of the book of Ruth and really the whole storyline of scripture up to that point, we know that God has been in control and not only in control, but very intentional about what has been happening. This is not a random event. Ruth just so happens, as the text says, to go on the field, the right field, to demonstrate that there is nothing happening randomly at all. God uses language of randomness to debunk that randomness even exists. Well, here's another example. It's found in 1 Kings 22, really 22 verse 34. 1 Kings 22 verse 34. And in context, God has had a conflict with Ahab. You see, Ahab has attempted over and over to assert his authority over God. And the climax of this conflict is in 1 Kings 22, where God reveals the courtroom, the throne room of heaven, and he declares, Ahab will die today. 
I am the true king, and he is not. And so God asserts his absolute sovereignty. You could think of it this way. In the book of Kings, in the book of Kings, God shows who the real king is. He reveals who the real king is, and that is himself. And so here's what happens in verse 34 in the ensuing battle that Ahab is engaged in. It says this, that a soldier draws his arrow at random. At random. In Hebrew, the idea is this, that the soldier draws the arrow in the integrity of his heart. You say, how do you draw an arrow in the integrity and purity of your heart? I mean, what does that even mean? Well, the idea is that the soldier had no malice, no no hatred, no grudge against any individual. He was not saying something like this. I don't really like that guy, so I'm going to aim my arrow at him. He, there was nothing like that. He, he had a pure heart when he drew the arrow, i.e. he didn't want to hit anybody. He was totally innocent. He intended to hit nothing. He aimed at nothing. It is as if he drew the arrow while looking toward the ground. He has no intention to hit anything. And here's the deal. He misses. He misses. He wants to hit nothing and he misses. He can't even do that. As the rest of the verse records, the arrow hits not just anybody, but it hits Ahab. And it doesn't just hit Ahab, it it says in the text, it hit Ahab between the chain link of the armor. And it didn't just hit Ahab between the chain link of the armor, it hit Ahab in the chain link of the armor right above a critical artery so that Ahab bleeds out and dies. Now, do you think someone not aiming, aiming at quote-unquote random, can not only hit Ahab, the king, not only hit him in the size of an area of a couple square inches between the chain link of the armor, and not only hit him in that small, small window of space, but hit him in the vital organ that he had so that he would die. Do you really think that's random, that that just happened accidentally? No. We know in context, God has already decreed Ahab's death. And here's what really happened. Yes, the man in his heart had no grudge against Ahab personally. He was not aiming for him. But when he shot the arrow in the air, the hand of God grabbed it and directed it like a missile right where it needed to go into Ahab. There is nothing random. There is nothing random. God uses the language of randomness to teach us that random does not exist. God uses the language of randomness to show us that nothing in the Bible, nothing in our lives, nothing in this world is random. There is no such thing as luck. There is no such thing as coincidence. Now, how much more then in the life of Christ is there no such thing as coincidence? How much more in the life of the most important, critical, pivotal individual at the climactic, central, culminative moment of God's history and of God's plan should we be convinced that every single thing, not just the major things in Christ's life, but every single thing in Christ's life is intentional. It is deliberate. There is no moment in Christ's life, put it this way, that is not perfect. That is not perfect. That is specially planned by God, executed perfectly to be perfect in every single way, not just in the general idea of that, but every component and every detail. And that is what I want to show you this morning. What I want to do is to walk you through the life of Christ, to walk you through the life of Christ, especially in light of the Old Testament, and to highlight that it's every detail. 
It's every place he went. It's everything he said. It's every single thing he did. Even the most minor, minuscule, obscure detail that you might just brush over, that actually was specially designed by God. It is perfect. He had one perfect life. Not just morally perfect. Perfect in every single way possible. And that is in light of the Old Testament. That is our goal for this morning. Now, before we get into walking through the life of Christ from his birth to the resurrection, we need two really important reminders. And, and this will just help to clarify our approach in our minds before engaging in this. And, and that is the question, how does the Old Testament connect with Christ? How does the Old Testament connect with Christ? And one way, and I think we're familiar with this, is that it connects with him via prophecy. It connects with him via prophecy. And I think we understand this, that the Old Testament has predictions and the New Testament shows how those predictions are actualized or fulfilled in Christ's life. And we are familiar with this. Nevertheless, we need to remember that with every prophecy, there is a theology. With every prophecy, there is a theology. This is not just stated for apologetic purposes, the reason prophecies are given in the first place is that the author, the prophet, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has an agenda. He is trying to teach us truth. And so he says, look to the future when these truths, when these promises, when these actualities are fulfilled. And so there is theology tied with every prophecy. So when we look at prophecies being fulfilled in the New Testament in Christ, we don't just say, oh, good, that fulfilled an Old Testament prophecy. See, the Bible's true. We absolutely do say that, but we also need to say this, there is a theology there, a theology now that has been actualized, a theology that is associated with Christ's life, and we need to know that. We need to know that. But prophecy, as important and as vital as that is for how the Old Testament connects with the New, is not the only way it does. It also connects via preparation. Preparation. This isn't direct prediction, but it shows that the Old Testament establishes theology that relates to Christ, that sets up for him, that pertains to him. And here's a simple example of that. John 1, 29, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, if you had no clue about the scriptures in this regard, you might have questions like this. Is Jesus a lamb? Is he a sheep? Is he a pet? Furthermore, how can a sheep take away sin? Or how does he take away the sins of the world? Immediately, you know, you have to start talking about the Levitical system and you have to talk about the sacrifices and you have to talk about Isaiah 53 to make sense of that statement. That statement is dependent upon scriptural Old Testament information. It relies on that so that we can understand what is going on. Now, that is an obvious example of how the Gospels pull from the Old Testament, but the Gospels do that on a much more detailed level. Remember that the biblical writers are inspired of the Holy Spirit, and not only that, they were immersed in the Old Testament. They meditated on it day and night. And so in light of this, they are constantly reaching back to the Old Testament, pulling 
words and phrases that would sound familiar to their audiences to draw the theology of that and import it into Christ's life so you see the fullness of what is happening. So you see the fullness of what is happening. And so as we walk through the life of Christ now, we need to be seeing how the Old Testament is so thoroughly involved in the Gospels, in the life of Christ, not only via prophecy, but also via preparation. And through this, we will really see he has a perfect life. He has a perfect life. And this begins with his birth. This begins with his birth. And one example of this, and we can't just go through every single example because even the birth itself of Christ would, would take basically an hour and a half, maybe three, six, 20 hours to talk about. So we can just talk about some samples of this to get our minds started in the right direction. And one of the simplest things to get us started when dealing with Christ's birth in the Old Testament is the genealogies the genealogies. And, and I know whenever we pull up a genealogy, people say, oh no, why this? It's so boring just to list names. Why is this here? But that's where the Old Testament comes in. That's where the Old Testament comes in. The reason you have genealogies in the first place is because of the prophecy of Genesis 3.15. The prophecy of Genesis 3.15, God promises that the woman will have a child, will have a seed, and that line of seed will culminate in the seed the Messiah who will crush the serpent's head. And this begins then a search for the Messiah. This begins then a search for the Messiah. In fact, every time in Genesis, the genealogies begin a section of Genesis. They begin a section of Genesis. Why? Because the search is continuing. Because the search is winnowing down. What you have in the genealogies is that you start with Adam and his wife Eve, and all of a sudden that line of the seed winnows down. It hones down by process of elimination, and it hones down until you get a mother and a father and one child, and you know, that one is the Messiah. That one is the Messiah. That is the goal of the genealogies. The reason we have genealogies to begin with is that it is a search for the Messiah, and it is a testimony that God throughout history has been faithful to focus history on his son, to bring us closer to his son. So when Matthew, and notice, in Matthew's gospel, just like Genesis, it begins the book. It begins the whole section discussing Jesus. What is Matthew saying? This is the final genealogy. Started in Genesis, what began in that first book now finishes here. This is the final genealogy. And now, finally, we have gone from all mankind to one nation, Israel. And within Israel, we've gone through a tribe. And within that tribe of Judah, we've gone to a royal house of David. And within that royal house of David, we've gone to a specific familial line. And within that specific familial line, now we have gone to one very specific family, one very specific family. And this one is it. This one is it. He is the one. He is the one. That's the point of a genealogy. It is profound. It proves without a shadow of a doubt who the Messiah must be. And along the way, Matthew even implies that, the, that women have been involved in this whole process. In fact, women participated in the past at critical junctures when that line was winnowing down. And so Matthew is already showing God's faithfulness in history and, and how he has involved all in his plan. And even more than that, Matthew focuses on a very specific issue, a very important issue, and that is what we call the Jeconiah curse, the Jeconiah curse. And you say, what is that? Well, in Jeremiah 22, there was a king 
His name is Jehoiachin, also known as Jeconiah. And he was very bad, very, very, very bad. So bad that God says this, none of your offspring can become king. None of your offspring can become king. Write this man down as childless. Now, simple question. How do you become a king normally? Your dad was king. That's how you become king. Now we have a perfect conundrum. None of your kids can become king, even though that's the only way kids can become king. So you can't have anybody become king. This is now an impossibility. How can someone become king when it is impossible for them to become king, but the only means for them to become king is to be aligned with the one that they can't be aligned with to become king? It's a conundrum. And Matthew raises this issue. He repeats the name Jeconiah or Jehoiachin repeatedly in Matthew chapter one, in that genealogy to raise the issue. How are you gonna have a king, O Jewish people? How are you gonna have a king? And we know the answer. In fact, the answer is implied at the end of Matthew one, because even though this genealogy belongs to Joseph, it says this, that even though this is Joseph's genealogy, Jesus was born not from Joseph, but from Mary. This is the virgin birth, the virgin birth. Therefore, Jesus is Joseph's perfect son without actually being his biological son, which means he inherits all of the rights that the father has without actually being his son. He is the only one, and that is the only way you can escape the Jeconite curse, the Jeconite curse. And that's Matthew's point. That's Matthew's point. Israel, Jewish people, you know that it is impossible for you to have a true Davidic king after that curse. But God figured out a way. God always knew a way how to bypass that. And this is the one. This is the only one. And there's no way around that now. There's no way around that now. If we also look beyond Matthew's genealogy to Luke's genealogy, which traces actually Jesus's mother's line, Mary's line, we see that it actually goes back to Adam, to Adam calling him the son of God relative to his status of the image bearer of God. And the point of the matter is simply this. In a book like Luke, where it focuses on history and it shows that indeed history is taking place, Adam was a determiner of history. In him, all men died and plunged creation into a line of sin and death. But in Christ, history will change. He is the second Adam. And so this genealogy proclaims this one is to rectify to write what Adam had done wrong and to redirect and retraject history in the right way. These genealogies are profound. These genealogies are profound. Here's what they show. There is only one and there can be only one. This is the one, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the only one who is at the culmination of a line. He is the only one who climaxes God's faithfulness. He is the second Adam and the culmination of history. And he is the only one to overcome the Jeconiah curse. He is the only one, the one and only one. A genealogy might not look like much, but actually it demonstrates the full culmination of God's plan in history, thousands of years of his work to prove without a shadow of a doubt, this is the one. There is no question. There is no doubt. This is the one. That's the power of a genealogy in light of the Old Testament. 
in light of the Old Testament? Well, in addition to a genealogy, we could also talk about the virgin birth, about the virgin birth. We know that it is a prophecy fulfilled that Jesus was born of a virgin. In fact, this goes back to Isaiah chapter 7. But to really understand the theology of it, and we must remember that there is theology in it. It's not just this random prophecy. There is an agenda that God has. There is a purpose that God has. And herein it lies. In Isaiah 7, in the original context, Israel and really the Davidic dynasty, Israel and the Davidic dynasty are threatened by their enemies. And God says, I will give you a sign. I will give you a proof that you all will survive. I will give you a proof that you all will survive. What is that proof? It is the virgin birth. And you say, well, what kind of sign, what kind of security is that? Well, what you have in the text is a very familiar formula to the Old Testament reader. It says that a virgin will conceive and give birth. When you hear that phrase, conceive and give birth, you will actually reminisce and realize that it's also talking about, and that's been applied to, other women who were barren in the past. Other women who were barren in the past. For example, Sarah. For example, Rachel. For example, Samson's mother. For example, Samuel's mother. All of them conceived and gave birth birth. Now, of course, that act in and of itself is miraculous because they were barren, and all of them gave birth to a son who was significant in God's plan, whether that be Isaac, whether that be Samson, whether that be Samuel. They were all significant. However, how much more is it spectacular that God not only does a miracle in the life of a barren woman, but how much more is it amazing that he does that same miracle, a heightened miracle, in a virgin woman? Now that takes the level up a notch. And furthermore then, what does that indicate? This child is not just a significant individual. This child is what? The most significant individual of all time. He exceeds them all. He exceeds them all. In fact, as the text says, he is Emmanuel, God with us. That is how substantive he is. He is nothing short than God incarnate with us to fulfill all of his plans. Now that is what provides security ultimately and definitively for Israel and the Davidic dynasty. And so when Matthew, a book that focuses on Jesus as king, reveals that Jesus was born of a virgin, what is he reminding everyone? This is the security. This is our security. This is the only one who can fulfill everything. This is what, he has the ultimate reign. He is the fulfillment of the royal house. He is the security of Israel because he is God. In light of the Old Testament, the virgin birth is not just some fact that needs to be fulfilled. It is the announcement that Christ is the highest king of heaven and that he is central to everything. And Matthew, by showing this, demonstrates the nature of the person of Christ, demonstrates that he is the most important person. At the same time, there is another element, though. At the same time, there is another element You see, Isaiah 7.14 in context not only announces the most important person's birth, but it does so in a context of suffering. You see, Jesus, it is predicted, as the text says, he will eat curds and honey. And you might wonder, curds and honey, is that the new best gourmet baby food that we should all pick up for our children? And the answer is, well, maybe you can do that. I don't know if it's bad or not. I'm not a nutritionist, but that's not the point of the text. The reason a child would eat curds and honey is because the child is born in poverty, born in poverty. In fact, it's worse than poverty. He would be born under exilic rule, under an enemy's rule, to the point where you couldn't farm, 
to the point where you couldn't harvest. And so the reason you have curds and honey is because this is what a parent would be able to scramble up from what the land, quote unquote, naturally produces. In fact, later on in Isaiah 7, it says exactly that. It says exactly that. Jesus, although he is a king, he will not be born in a palace. He will be born in humiliation. He will be born in shame. He will be born into oppression. And that's exactly what we see in Luke. That's exactly why what we see in Luke. You see, there's this guy in Luke that doesn't exist. His name is the innkeeper. He's victimized by every Christian play and everything under the sun. And don't worry, like I said, his feelings are not hurt because he never existed. There might have been a Bethlehem height innkeeper, but that's not the guy in Luke, you see, because the word in in Luke 2 is mistranslated. It doesn't mean in. In fact, do you remember that Jesus and his disciples have a meal in the upper room? It's the same word. They did not have a meal at Motel 6. They had a meal in someone's guest room. And in Luke chapter 2, the same word is used. And if you say, well, was there a word for a hotel? Absolutely. If you remember the parable of the good Samaritan, in the book of Luke, you have a hotel and it's a different word. It's a different word. Luke knows the word for hotel. He can use it. He's proven it. And he also knows the word for guest room. And he proved it. So this is the word for guest room. Now here's the question. Given the realities of ancient Near Eastern and really Greco-Roman hospitality, especially with family, why would there be no room in a guest room? Especially for a woman that is pregnant. Of course, with the family values that people had at that time, you would always make room for such, a, for such an individual, the host of the family. This would be the most, most appropriate thing to do. The host would give up his own bed. The host would give up his own room for the sake of a family member that was in that kind of situation. So why didn't it happen? Why didn't it happen? Well, the simplest explanation would be that they knock on the door, Mary and Joseph, Mary, Joseph, haven't caught up with you. Heard you were engaged. Well, why weren't we invited to the wedding? What happened here? Well, there's no room. There's no room for you. Get out. That's what happened. The Messiah was born in shame. He was born in shame. Now, having said that, Isaiah 9, which is just a short hop and jump from Isaiah 7, which talks about how he will eat curds and honey, reminds us of this, that in the darkness shone a great light, shone a great light. The Messiah was born in darkness to break it. He was born in darkness to break it. In fact, that's exactly what Matthew reminds us. If you remember when Jesus was born around that time, and we'll come back to this in a little bit, that Herod attempted to kill the baby boys. And, and there's a quotation in Matthew of Jeremiah 31, Rachel weeping for her children. This is all indicative of the reality that in the exile, there is immense suffering, immense suffering. But here's what's interesting. In Jeremiah 31, right after it talks about Rachel weeping for her children because her people will suffer so grossly in the hands of their enemies, God says to Rachel, stop crying. Stop crying. For there is a new covenant coming. For your Savior has dawned. And all of a sudden, we realize that Jesus was born into the exile. He was born into the oppression to end it. To end it. For some of us, Christmas is not always 
the time of warm fuzzies and the time of feeling close. And it sometimes has a lot of pain. It can sometimes be dark. What you need to remember is that it was dark on Jesus' Christmas too. It was a tough time then too, but he was born into it to end it. He was born into it to end it. He gives a hope that is real, not just of a God who was distant and said, yeah, I can manipulate things and I can change things so that there is an effect on the surface superficial level. No, he went deep inside. He went all the way inside to end it. That is how much he loves. And that is the effectiveness of his hope that he gives in his son. That is what happens on Christmas. That is what happens on Christmas. That is part of the significance of the virgin birth, of the virgin birth. He is the true savior. He gives hope and the Old Testament brings that out. Well, in addition to all this, and really along that theme, we have the notion of Bethlehem, that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And we know that every card says this, Bible trivia winners all win this. We probably even know in light of this where the passage is found, Micah 5, 2. But again, don't just say a prophecy is fulfilled. We need to know why. We need to know why. And in the book of Micah, Micah reminds us in light of Israel's sin, really in light of the fact that their leaders are sinful, that Israel must go into that exile that we just talked about. And that ends not only the nation of Israel, but the Davidic dynasty. It ends the Davidic dynasty. It says in Micah 1.15 that the royal house of Israel, the glory of Israel, will go to the cave of Adullam. Now, if you know a little bit of geography, the cave of Adullam is where David started to run away from Saul at the beginning of his whole journey to becoming a king. And what is God's point? The Davidic dynasty, the royal house, the king and the kingdom, they got to start all over. We got to start all over again. We got to start from scratch. We got to start from the ground up. Well, if you're going to really start all over, if you're going to really start from scratch, then you got to start over with a new David. You got to have a brand new one. And if you're going to have a brand new one, well, he's got to be born where the first David was born, which is where? In Bethlehem. And that's exactly why Jesus must be born in Bethlehem. Because he is the new David because he is the David that will actually raise up the tattered ruins of his own house. He is the David that will fulfill the mission of the Davidic dynasty. He is the one who will repair everything and cause it to achieve its destiny. That is why Jesus is born in Bethlehem, in Bethlehem. God even planned the place of Jesus' birth perfectly. It is not by accident. It is to send a tremendous theological message about his son, about his son. Well, in addition to the place, we could talk about what happens. And, and to be technical, this is really what happens in and around Jesus' birth, because I'm talking about here in Matthew 2, what happens when Herod is attempting, like I alluded to earlier, to kill all those baby boys and Jesus escapes to Egypt and things of that nature. And what I say is it happens around his birth be, is probably because this happened, say, around the time that Jesus was two years old. Jesus was two years old. But that's close enough to birth, if we're going to classify it, that I lump it into this section. In any case, though, that whole incident where Herod is attempting to kill all those baby boys in Bethlehem should make us remember something in the Old Testament. In fact, it's intentional. When Moses was born, Pharaoh tried to kill baby boys. He tried to kill baby boys, but God saved 
Moses. God delivered Moses. In fact, as I've alluded to earlier, that God saved Moses as a sign that Moses would be not only the leader, but the one who secures deliverance for his people in the end. And so God at Moses's birth demonstrates that Moses is the deliverer and through him will come deliverance for his whole people in the first exodus. In the same way, we have deja vu. We have a repetition. Jesus is persecuted by Herod. Herod tries to kill all the baby boys, but God saves Herod to show that this one is the new Moses. This one is the new deliverer who will accomplish a new deliverance for his people in a second exodus, in a second exodus. And all of that, all that idea of a second exodus and a new deliverer at this moment is brought together as Matthew quotes from Hosea 11.1, out of Egypt, I called my son. God in Hosea 11.1 in context speaks of the first exodus, but in context, he says this, because I love my son the first time, I'm going to do it again because I cannot let him go, because I love him too much, and therefore I will bring my people back from Egypt. He says that in Hosea 11, 11. And what do we have here? God is announcing, I'm working that plan out. This is the new Moses who will do that. And he will accomplish that second exodus, that second deliverance. He will save his people from their sins. That is what is going on in Matthew 2. It is an announcement with absolute clarity this is the new Moses. This is the one who leads us home. This is the one who fights for us. This is the one who grants us salvation. Well, it isn't just what happens. It's also what is said around Jesus' birth that shows us that there's rich Old Testament theology, and and it helps us to understand the nature of who Jesus is. We have uh, the reality that when the angel talks to Mary originally, he says and speaks of how the Messiah will reign on the throne of David and rule over Judah forever. That's found in Luke 1.32. That's found in Luke 1.32. What we have here is the realization that Jesus is not just some ordinary guy. He is a king. He is an eternal king, and he will claim the promises of the Davidic covenant, which affect everything in God's plan, affect everything in God's plan, and he will fulfill them all. Mary's Magnificat is rich with scripture, and it just bears worth on a slight tangent to make a note that Mary knew her Bible. Mary really knew her Bible, In her Magnificat, there are at least 15 allusions to different parts of Scripture. And she can just weave all of that together off the top of her head. She knew her Bible. She knew her Bible. That's an important lesson. But in any case, Mary's Magnificat alludes to passages like Psalm 113 or Hannah's own prayer about Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 2. And what Mary reveals and reminds us through her prayer of praise is that she reminds us that the coming of her son, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ will turn everything around. The the poor will become rich and the rich will become poor. The unjust will have justice done to them and those who have lacked justice done to them will have justice done for them. Those who were high will be made low and those who were low will be made high. Is our Jesus big enough? Is our Jesus big enough? Is he just a person who just saves you and gets you out of hell, scot-free? Or is he one who will make everything in this universe right? That is what Mary's reminding us of, that Jesus is big. 
that Jesus, his reach and his salvation, yes, it centers on sin. That is the linchpin of everything. But for that reason is the linchpin of everything. And he makes everything right. He is the bringer of that kind of salvation as we see in the Abrahamic covenant. Zechariah reaffirms this. He talks about how God has raised the horn of salvation, alluding to Psalm 18.2. And he talks about deliverance and redemption, the fulfillment of all promises. You can think of it this way. The more you know the Old Testament, the more you know the Old Testament, you realize that Jesus is the weight of Old Testament theology, Old Testament promise, Old Testament expectation on every level. The more you know your Old Testament, the more weighty Jesus becomes because you realize how much he is doing. And that's what his birth announces. Well, along that line, one other thing that is said is what the angels say when Jesus is born, what they say to the shepherds, glory to God in the highest and peace on earth with all men. Now, that actual phraseology is found in Psalm 148 and will only later be said in Revelation 14. Psalm 148 and later on Revelation 14. This is not just talking about what happens now when Jesus is born. This is talking about the future. This is talking about the future when Jesus ultimately returns, that finally there will be joy. Finally, there will be global worship. Finally, God will be at peace with man and man will be at peace with God and man will be at peace with each other because God's good will is finally lived out. What the angels are proclaiming is this makes history. This one birth sets the course to the future all the way to the end. That's what this moment does. To put it in perspective and just to understand the grandeur of this, no one said that when we were born. There was nothing that happened in the hospital that said, because this one is born, everyone can be at peace. The world will be restored and everything is all good now. All right, you can go home. No, that's not what anyone said over us. But that's what the angels say about Jesus. That one moment is that powerful. That one moment is that powerful. We realize that even what is said in Jesus' birth, every phrase, every word, it is significant. It's not by accident. It is intentional, and it magnifies Christ. Even who shows up is significant. Who shows up? Like the shepherds. The shepherds, on one hand, the fact that God uses shepherds, sometimes people wonder, but why, why, why the shepherds? And I had a student once who said to me, well, I, maybe they were the only ones available. <laughs> yeah, I think God, if he wanted to, could wake somebody up and send them you know, a divine alarm clock. It would be quite humorous. But no, it's not just because the shepherds were available. On one hand, yes, it brings out the humility of the tale. While there are all these tales about hero's birth, whether that be Caesar or others, and they have all these dignitaries that come to their birth to try to verify them, and it's a completely exaggerated fable. Luke says, let me be real. Shepherds came. Shepherds came. That humility brings out veracity. That humility brings out veracity, the truthfulness of the matter. But it's more to it than that. Throughout the Old Testament, we know that leaders of Israel, kings of Israel, they were called shepherds, 2 Samuel 5. But these shepherds, if they really understood their task, they would know that they could never be the true shepherd. In fact, what does David say, Psalm 23? The Lord is my shepherd. Yes, God, you called me a shepherd. Yes, God, you called me to be a shepherd of these people, Israel. But I'm not it. Only who is 
Yahweh. Yahweh is the true shepherd. For that very reason, in Ezekiel 34, God says, I saw that there were no good shepherds amongst my people, so I became their shepherd. Ezekiel 34, I became their shepherd. And in light of this then, when the shepherds gather around that manger, they are in an act of solidarity to say this. We as shepherds say, this one is the shepherd. He's one of us, but he's more than one of us. He's the head of all of us. He is the head of all of us. The shepherds are perfectly placed. The shepherds are perfectly placed to announce the Messiah, to announce the Messiah. Even the people who show up, it's not by accident. It is perfect. It is perfect. There are no coincidences in Christ's life. Well, here's another one. And this does happen a little bit after his birth, to be fair. But you remember there is Simeon who holds baby Jesus, as well as another lady whose name is Anna. Now, Here's what's interesting. The text of Luke mentions the name of Anna's tribe. It's interesting. Why does it do that? It's such an obscure detail. Maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe you would get her confused from Anna with another tribe. No, that's not what's going on. The tribe that Anna's mentioned from is from the tribe of Asher, the tribe of Asher. And in Hebrew, Asher means joy. It means happiness. You see, what happens in the book of Luke is you have Jesus born into sorrow. We've already talked about this. He's born into darkness. But the last words of Luke show what happens because he came. It says this, that they rejoiced in the Lord, praising him. You have one world of darkness, but when Jesus leaves, you have joy. And Anna from the tribe of Asher is a testimony that God will actually restore happiness. God designed everything perfect. He even had the right lady from the right tribe come. It wasn't an accident. It was perfect. It was perfect. That's the level of planning that God has. All that to say is that we could spend so much more and talk so much more about what is going on. Malachi, for example, talks about a messenger, and and that sets up for the next stage of God's history. And in between that time, there's a time of silence. So it's very interesting. Luke, the perfect historian, where does he pick up? Right when God begins to speak again, when he breaks the silence. And so Luke is perfect in that way. And we could talk about the background of John the Baptist as an Elijah. And we could also talk about the involvement of Gabriel, who is this angel in Daniel and who reveals what God will do. And now as God is doing it, he appears again to finish the job, so to speak. We could talk about so many different factors, but all of it to say is this, that in a very short time of Christ's life, a couple years, and in an even very shorter text, there is immense theology packed in. He is the culmination of a line. He is the culmination of royalty. He is the culmination of history. He is the fulfillment of promises to Israel, the nations, the world. He is the one who critically deals with sin. He is the declared one who is the new Moses, the new David, the new king, the final deliverer. With that, the birth of Christ is carefully shaped by God to announce, this is my son. This is the final king. This is God. And there is no one like him. He is everything for you. Every detail from where things take place, like Bethlehem, to the genealogy, to who's involved, to what is said and what is done, everything in every dimension is stage perfect to announce his son. You could think of it this way. God made this moment as special as he could. God made this moment of Jesus' birth as special as he could so that you would know this is the one. This is the one. And so everything in Christ's birth in light of the Old Testament is designed to declare and bombard us with 
the majesty of Jesus Christ, with the majesty of Jesus Christ. Well, it's not just Jesus' birth. It's not just Jesus' birth. It's Jesus' ministry. Jesus' ministry. And to be fair, there is a lot that happens in Jesus' three-year-or-so ministry, and we can't talk about it all, but what I want to do is break it down into some more topics, to break it down into things like timing and place and teaching and actions. And that way we can see that in every single nuance, in every single aspect of every single event, it is nothing short of absolutely profound. It is not, it's nothing short of absolutely profound in light of the Old Testament. And let's just begin with talking about timing. Let's just begin with talking about timing. John chapter one, turn there. John chapter 1, turn there, just so that you can see where I'm coming from. It's interesting that in John 1, really into John chapter 2, what we will observe is that it narrates, that is, John narrates the first week of Jesus' ministry. The first week of Jesus' ministry. Notice how carefully he says this. Verse 29, on the next day. Verse 35, on the next day. Verse 43, on the next day. Chapter 2, verse 1. Three days after, on the third day. Next day, next day, next day, on the third day. And on that third day that comes after, you have a wedding ceremony. So you have this week that ends with a wedding. You have a week that ends with a wedding. And, and since John really doesn't do this very much, he doesn't narrate Jesus' life day by day, we have to ask the question, why? Why? Why does he do this? And the only clue we have in context, because this is John chapter 1, is the beginning of John, which says, in the beginning was the word, which takes us back to Genesis 1. So we should be asking in our minds, is there anything in Genesis 1 about a week that ends with a wedding between husband and wife, man and woman? Anything in Genesis 1 or 2 about that? And you might say, yeah, the whole chapter. Everything in that is about that. Exactly. Exactly. And here's John's point. You just met the creator of Genesis chapter one. You just met the creator. You just met at the wedding, so to speak, the one who performed the first wedding. You just met the creator of Genesis chapter one. He just reenacted the first week with you all over again. You see, everything in Jesus' life is absolutely non-random. It is absolutely intentional. Even the order of events in one week, it is perfectly timed, perfectly set, so that you would understand who he is. He has a perfect life, a perfect life. The timing of it is absolutely perfect. The arrangement of it and the organization of it is absolutely perfect. Speaking of perfection, it's not just time, it's also place. It's also place. Where things take place is absolutely critical. The setting of where things occur is absolutely critical. And that begins at the beginning with the Jordan River. We remember that John the Baptist, who paves the way for the Messiah, he's baptizing in the Jordan. This is by no accident. This is by no accident. Remember, in earlier on in the Old Testament, you have a guy named Elijah. And when he is taken up into heaven with a chariot of fire, where, where did he just cross over? The river of the Jordan. Even more, if you actually stop and think about this, in 2 Kings chapter 1, it says this, that 
the, the one king, a bad king named Ahaziah, he says, what is the prophet wearing that told you these things? And the prophet says, oh, he's a hairy man with a leather belt. And the guy says, that must be Elijah. That's Elijah. I recognize him from anywhere. The man who wears, who's a leather belt and a hairy clothing, he is Elijah. Well, now what do we have? Elijah, what is he wearing? Hairy stuff with a leather belt. Last seen where? Jordan River, taken up into heaven uh, to reappear again. And what do you have with John the Baptist? What is he wearing? Hairy garments, leather belt. Seen where? Jordan River. Get the connection? It is absolutely clear where he's doing things and what he is even wearing. What he is even wearing because it designates this is the, this is the Elijah that... Malachi was talking about. This is the Elijah that Malachi was talking about. God sets the scene so clear that you now know who John the Baptist is. And because you know who John the Baptist is, since he points to Jesus, now you know who Jesus is. He is the Messiah because John the Baptist was the one to prepare the way for the Lord. And that's exactly what we see. The scene is set perfectly. The scene is set perfectly. Well, it's not just there on the Jordan River, but we also know that Jesus really bases his ministry. He ministers most concentratedly in the area of Galilee, in the area of Galilee. And the, the question is, why? Why does he do this? Well, in Matthew 4, we have a little bit of the explanation because it is found in Isaiah 9. We already talked a little bit about how the light pierces through the darkness, but it says specifically in Isaiah 9 that the Messiah will minister in Galilee where there is darkness. The Messiah will minister in Galilee where there is darkness. And there's a reason for this. You see, because enemies would always invade Israel from the north to the south. Enemies would always invade Israel from the north to the south. And upon doing so, then Galilee, which is in the north, would always be the most afflicted. They would always get hit first. They would always be invaded first. They would always be the ones who suffer first. They would always be bombarded with oppression. And so why does Jesus minister in Galilee? It's simple, because it's an act of love. Because those who suffered the most first will be the first to see their Messiah. Will be the first to see their Messiah. It's no accident that Jesus spends so much time in Galilee. It is perfect. It is intentional. And it is to show that God loves, that God loves that he has compassion, that he really does care about these people who seem so neglected and so oppressed throughout Israel's history. But it goes one step beyond that. It goes one step beyond that. You see in Isaiah 9, part of the reason that a light pierces through the darkness in Galilee is because we remember that bad guys invade Israel from the north to the south, from the north to the south. And so by coming through the north, this light that pierces through the darkness, this is a reinvasion of Israel. This is a re-invasion of Israel. The light is breaking through from the north to retake what was plunged into darkness because the enemies had taken that away from God and his son. This is a re-invasion. And think about the flow of Jesus' life. Yes, he predominantly ministers in Galilee, but where does his ministry end? Where does he die? In what city? The city of Jerusalem. And so he moves from north to south. He moves from north to south to his capital in order to reinvade Israel to claim back his country and his people for himself. To claim back his people and his country for himself. He is claiming his kingdom. The very geographical flow 
the very geographical flow of Jesus' ministry from the north to the south tells you not only his compassion, but also his power. Everything is perfect in his life. Where he walks, where he goes, where he spends time, where he doesn't, where he ends up, everything is carefully planned, and it is perfect. It is perfect. Well, speaking of entering in Jerusalem, we could then talk about Jerusalem relative to the triumphal entry, relative to the triumphal entry. And here we have to realize that Jerusalem in the Old Testament always had a king. From the very beginning, Melchizedek was a socio-Jerusalem, and he was a king priest. And David, upon conquering Jerusalem, he's a king. And then there's Solomon who reigned in Jerusalem, and all the subsequent kings who reigned in Jerusalem, they're all kings. And this raises an issue. You see, when you get to the book of Nehemiah, when you get to the book of Nehemiah, I like Nehemiah to death. I named my son Nehemiah, but he, he's not a king. He's not a king. And I remind my son of that. So the, uh, the <laughs> Nehemiah is not a king. There are problems, and Nehemiah cannot stabilize Jerusalem. In fact, at the very end of the book, it talks about how Nehemiah's enemies, really the enemies of Israel and God, they actually got to live in the temple. That's not good. They got to live in the temple. They got to have a room there. And Nehemiah tries to clean out the temple, but he can't. He cannot maintain Jerusalem. He's not a king. And so he prays, Lord, remember me. Remember me. And this is not a vain prayer. This is the idea of do not let my work go in vain. And God says, I heard that. I heard that. Triumphal entry. The king comes into his city. First act as king. Where does he go? To the truth, not just in Jerusalem, but to the temple. And what does he do in the temple? He what? Cleanses the temple. And God says, Nehemiah, your prayer is answered. The king has come. There are no accidents. There is nothing random. Everything is purposeful. Everything is intentional. Every detail, the arrangement of that detail, what exactly happens, where it happens, it is perfect. It is perfect. In fact, along that line, and here's another thing to remember about the triumphal entry, Jesus' first miracle in Jerusalem, when in the triumphal entry, it says this in Matthew chapter 21, verse 14. Matthew 21, verse 14, it says this, he healed all the lame and blind. That's the specific miracle that he did. Out of all the miracles that he could do, you know, he could have blinded everyone and said, see, I'm the king. He could have made everyone bow down. That would have been cool too. He could have made donkeys dance. I mean, there's one with him anyway. But he chooses instead to heal the lame and the blind. And we have to ask the question, what? Why? Why does he do this? And it's simple. You see, in 2 Samuel, when David conquers Jerusalem for the first time, he says this, I have conquered it and the lame and the blind will not enter here. The lame and the blind will not enter here. That's what king does. And Jesus says, you're right, David, but for different reasons. The lame and the blind won't enter here. Why? Because I healed them all. I didn't kick them out. I didn't cast them out. I healed them all. I healed them all. Jesus' first miracle in and after and around the temple cleansing in the triumphal entry, it is intentional. It is intentional. It is to show I am the true king. I am the real David that conquers his city for himself. This is my capital. The place where things happen is absolutely substantive. The place is not accidental. This is a perfect life. This is a perfect life. Well, we talked kind of about the flow, the beginning and the end of Jesus' three-year ministry, but we need to talk about a couple places that happen within that. And before doing so, I just need to remind us of an important principle in reality, and that is this, that places have memories. 
places have memories. If you're really going to understand the things that I'm about to say, you got to understand that places have memories. And I think we understand this. You see, even this church and, and its building, we know churches are not buildings, but we remember this facility and we know that we have good memories here. We have memories about vacations and where things take place. And, and my roommate even had memories of a certain place. He, he told me that he always dumped his girlfriends at a certain restaurant. Uh, I, I never ask for that name of the restaurant because places have memories, and that would just be bad news for me. So the, the point is, is that places have memories. Places have memories. Yes, most of them hopefully are good, but some, some like my roommate's situation, was, was very bad. So <clears throat> places have memories, and we need to remember that. And one place then becomes very important, and that is Nain. Name. In Luke chapter 7, Jesus heals the son of a widow, raises him from the dead at his own funeral instantaneously. It's powerful. It happens at the city called Nain. And, and we might just gloss over that. Well, yeah, he's in Nain. Why not? I mean, why could he could be anywhere, I guess, and this happened. No, it has to be at Nain, you see, because Nain is on this hill. And on the other side of the hill is this city called Shunem. Shunem. And in Shunem, places have memories. Elisha, he raises a boy from the dead, which actually sounds a lot like what Elijah did earlier when he raised a son of a widow from the dead. Now, in those earlier instances with Elisha and even Elijah, they had to do kind of gymnastics to get the son raised from the dead. They laid on the boy. They prayed seven times. They pleaded with God. All of that was to ask God and show their dependence on God for his power to do so. But what does Jesus do in Nain? He just walks up to the boy and says, get up. And the boy, what? rises from the dead. What does that show you? This is not Elisha or even Elijah. This is who? The God of Elisha and Elijah. That is what Jesus proclaimed. The reason the place matters is so that you would remember what happened there earlier. You would remember what happened there earlier. Places have memories, and then you would know exactly who Jesus is. You would know exactly who Jesus is. Even a place proves that Jesus is God and that he is greater than any prophet because he is God. Well, here's another example place, the Sermon on the Mount, the mountain. Why does it have to be on a mountain? Why can't it be on a tower or podium or temple or a hill or even better, an ocean? Why, you know, Sermon on the Beach? Why can't it be something like that? And this goes back to Deuteronomy. At the end of Deuteronomy, Moses says, there has not been a prophet like me, but there will be. There will be one, and you need to watch out for him. One who will do a second exodus, one who will perform signs and wonders similar to the first exodus, and he will do that again. And therefore, he will mediate a new covenant, just like I mediated an old covenant. Well, where did Moses mediate an old covenant? On a mountain. We call it Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai. So we know that old covenant was filled with curse because Israel could never obey and receive God's blessing, and so it was always curse, 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 curse. So Jesus walks on a mountain and gives a sermon on the mount. And what are his first words? Not curse, but what? Blessed. And now you know this is the one. This is the new Moses who will turn everything around. He will give a new covenant that undoes the curse of the first covenant. And he will do the, make a covenant that will actually purify from, us, from the heart. And this is exactly what Moses was anticipating. This is exactly what Moses pointed to. The place of everything is perfect. It is perfect. You could preach a sermon on a place. 
You could lead a Bible study on a place. That's how intentional God is with it. Well, it's not just places. It's also teaching. It's what Jesus says that becomes absolutely profound. We know that, for example, in John 15, Jesus says, I'm the vine. And we say, yeah, that's a wonderful thing. That's very lovely. That's very important. But you have to understand the Old Testament background. You see, in Isaiah 5, God recounts that he had planted a vine that was Israel, and he desired good fruit from that vine, but he would never get good fruit from that vine. It always produced vomit fruit. Vomit fruit, it says in Hebrew. And this imagery continues throughout the Old Testament. In Hosea, it talks about how God desired fruit, but it could not produce fruit. In Jeremiah 2, it says, forget about fruit. Now Israel's so bad, they, they don't just not produce fruit. They also are just a decrept vine in Ezekiel 15. It's so bad that even the vine itself is worthless and only good to be burned. All Israel can do is do something negative. And that's the image of the vine. Over and over, God desires Israel to be fruitful. Over and over, they are to fulfill their destiny, but they can't. They can't. They don't have what it takes. They are not the ones in and of themselves that can actually be fruitful. But then we see disciples so discouraged on the night that Jesus was betrayed. And what does he finally say? John 15, I am the what? I'm the true vine. And the one who abides in me will what? Produce much fruit. For the first time in Israel's history, for the first time in God's plan, people can produce fruit. And God, through Christ, says to his disciples, you think this night is the night that I'm defeated? This is the night we have victory. This is the night we have victory. For the first time, I will change Israel's destiny because I will be everything that Israel is not so that they can be everything they should be in me. That is what Jesus says to his disciples there. His teaching of I am the vine is not just to encourage us. It is to show an epic moment that he alone can fulfill that he alone can fulfill because no one could be fruitful before then. And everyone knew that. And Jesus says, tonight is the night. I am the vine. And you, if you are in me, your destiny is changed for forever. That is John 15. That is its epicness. And by the way, that actually provides the background of why Paul says, bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit when we bear fruit in our lives in sanctification, that is profound because what we are showing the world is that unlike before, because of sin, where no one could actually be who they were supposed to be and we were under curse and we were all unfruitful for the first time, God has done a work to change everything around. And how do you know that? Because you're the first fruit of that. You're the first fruit of that. He has changed your life and you have borne fruit and that will move us toward the future. The teaching on the vine is epic. Likewise, Jesus earlier in John 10 says, I'm the good shepherd. And we know that, and we kind of relish that, that God, that Jesus will take care of us, and he sovereignly guards us. But there's another component to that, because we remember that the way that people in the Old Testament have talked about God as a good shepherd, it has always been about God. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. And later on in Ezekiel 34, I've already mentioned this before, that God says, I saw there were no good shepherds. So I became the good shepherd. I became the one who would shepherd my people and judge all of these false shepherds. So when Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd, what is he actually claiming? Not just that I'm a cute, cuddly, Dr. Coddle's nice, cuddly guy. I am what? God. 
and I'm here to judge all the what? False shepherds. All the false shepherds. That's why the people get mad. They don't get mad at a metaphor where you say, hey, I just love you and I want to take care of you and I want to give you a big hug. No one cares about that. But when you come down and say, I'm God and you are all false shepherds and I'm here to judge each and every one of you, now now people will get offended. Now people will get a little bit offended. And that is what is going on with I am the good shepherd. On top of that, Jesus frequently claims to be the son of man. And to really understand this phrase, you have to go back to Daniel chapter 7. Why is this one even called the son of man? Well, in Daniel 7, this is very fascinating. The scene unfolds like this. You see the clouds of heaven, and then you see the sea, and then you see all these animals, and then you see one like a son of man. Where have we had the progression of sky and sea, and then animals come out on dry land, and then you have a man? Where have we seen that before? Genesis chapter 1. And that tells us in creation, what is the agenda of Daniel 7? The question is, who will reign over the cosmos? Who will reign over the cosmos? Who is the ruler of the entire universe? And although all these nations symbolized by different animals and all their kingdoms and their kings have desired that position, it belongs to one, the one who is the true Adam, the one whom God has put in his image. And he is the image of God as God. And therefore he rules over the entire world. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus says, I'm the son of man, he's not just saying I'm humble. He is saying, I'm the ruler over the entire universe. I'm the ruler over the entire universe and every nation, tribe and tongue bows to me. Every molecule on this creation bows to me. Every plant and animal bows to me. I am the son of man. That's who I am. That's a very powerful and profound phrase. That's a very powerful and profound phrase, the son of man. Well, moving from the powerful and profound to something still powerful and profound and also a little bit funny, at least in my mind, is the mustard seed. And we remember this teaching of Jesus that even though the kingdom is like a mustard seed, it will grow into a big tree where the birds of the air and the beasts of the field lodge in its branches. And we also know that in context, the disciples, they've been kind of struggling with these parables. They haven't always gotten it. And when they say, Jesus, we don't understand, his reply was that if you don't have eyes to see, you're blind. Well, that's not real encouraging for the disciples. They really want to get a winner here. They don't want to be in this position. So they're really eager to try to figure something out. Now, the background and the mustard seed is this, that in Daniel 4, as well as Ezekiel 17 and throughout the Old Testament, you have this phrase that someone like a king or something like a kingdom rises out of the ground like a big tree and the birds of the air and the beasts of the field lodge in its branches and then it's cut down. It's cut down. That's always the tagline. Something grows. It's the big, the birds of the air, the beasts of the field, lodge in its branches, and then it's cut down. That's always the pattern. Grow big, cut down. Grow big, cut down. They just got that in their mind. Everyone in the Old Testament got that in their mind. So the disciples, keep in mind, they're so eager. They want to prove themselves. They don't want to get another one wrong. That would be really bad. So you can imagine how overjoyed they would be to finally hear this familiar phrase, the mustard seed is small. It grows up into a big tree and the birds of the air. And you can just imagine they're starting to join in with Jesus as he's telling the parable. It's a big chorus of the birds of the air and the beasts of the field lodging its branches. And the disciples say, and then it's cut down, right, Jesus? And Jesus says, what? No, that was the end of the parable. You missed the whole point. Next parable. And the disciples are like, no, not again. The Old Testament actually proves and shows us 
that the point of the parable is not in what is said, but in what is not said. Because God's kingdom will never be what? Cut down. That's the point. It is the greatest tree. It is the one that all kingdoms desire to be like, but the one that will never be cut down. You see, if you understand the Old Testament, everything Jesus says is profound. Everything he says is sophisticated. Every metaphor, every wordplay, the beginning of endings of every single parable he has, it is absolutely profound. That's what is going on in light of the Old Testament. Well, it's not just Jesus' teachings, it's also his actions. It's also his actions. What he does, all we've been talking about is what has been said, where it's said, the timing of it happening, but I mean, what about his physical actions? Are those profound too? And it's absolutely the case. We could actually go through the flow of John's gospel. We've already commented that it begins with the creation week, but it goes beyond that. You see a little bit after that and within that, really, Jesus renames Simon to who? Peter. Simon to Peter. Now, when have people been renamed in the Bible? We have Abram renamed to Abraham and Jacob even renamed to Israel. The patriarchs were renamed by God by God. And then we keep going and we hear of how Jesus met a woman at the well. But if you remember in the Old Testament, people met at wells and people met women at wells. You had Abraham's servant meeting a woman at the well. You had Jacob meeting a woman at the well. You even had Moses meeting a woman at the well. There is repetition here. There is repetition here. In fact, even then the woman asked Jesus, are you greater than our father Jacob? Are you greater than our father Jacob? She even has this in mind. And the answer, of course, is yes, he is greater than father Jacob because he is God himself. But then even after that, we have Jesus in John chapter six, he provides bread and people ask, hey, are you greater than Moses who provided us manna? And then in John six, also not only did Jesus feed the 5,000, but then after that, he walked on Water. And if we remember this connection with Moses, when did people walk in one water, something of that nature, in the crossing of the Red Sea? And so what we have here in the flow of John, we have creation, we have the patriarchs, we have Moses, we have the Exodus, we have the crossing of the Red Sea, all in that order. What is the point of John? The God of Israel is Jesus. Jesus is the God of Israel. The very flow of activity that he does is not by accident. It is not by accident. The arrangement of his actions are not by accident. The very things he does are not by accident. They are to show without a shadow of doubt, the one who did that earlier, that was me. And that's why I can do that now. That's why I can do it here and now. The flow of John's gospel tells us the profundity of Jesus' life in light of the Old Testament. What about the feeding of the 5,000? The feeding of the 5,000. There's a lot of things in the Old Testament going on here. For example, in 2 Kings 4, this is very striking. Elisha takes 20 loaves of bread to feed his people. Elisha takes 20 loaves of bread to feed his people. And you say, well, that sounds a lot like the feeding of the 5,000. Really, if we're being chronological, the feeding of the 5,000 sounds a lot like what? What Elisha did 
earlier in 2 Kings 4. Jesus is the fulfillment of Elisha's ministry. Jesus is the fulfillment of Elisha's ministry. And along that line, and really within that, we need to remember that Elisha's ministry was custom geared to showing the sovereignty of God over all, to show the sovereignty of God over all. Elisha ministers to Edom. He ministers to Moab. He ministers to Syria. A good example of that is Naaman, comes to him and Elisha ministers to him, even though he is a Syrian, a Syrian general. The point is, is that God is overall. And if we understand this, then we understand why Jesus not only performs the miracle of the 5,000, but also the feeding of the 4,000. And the question is, why does he do that? And even more, why are the disciples so surprised? It was just a chapter ago that he did the 5,000. And here they're wondering, Jesus, are you going to really do this miracle? Okay, can you really do it? What do you mean, can you really do it? Just flip the page and you knew that he did it before. And you were there asking him the very same questions. Why are you so foolish? And the answer is this, because in the miracle of the 4,000, Jesus was in a Gentile area. And the disciples are wondering, would you do the same thing you did for the Jews with the who? with the Gentiles. But what is the mission and the ministry of Elisha? He ministers to not just Jews, but to all, including Edom, Moab, and Syria. And that's exactly what Jesus does. He proves, I'm not just the God of the Jews, and I'm not just king over the Jews. I am the God and king over who? Everyone. Everyone. It is his sovereign attestation. It is his sovereign attestation. Well, there is another detail within this, especially if you read the book of Mark. You see, in Mark chapter 6, it says this, that Jesus causes all the people to lie down on the green grass, to lie down on the green grass. And, and you might, if you're kind of reading this, you have to ask the question, why does the grass have to be green? Why do you need to mention that? It seems so superfluous. Is this just so that we can, you know, have a better picture or put a big flannel graph or, or, or what? Why do we need to know the grass is green? Psalm 23. He makes me lie down in green pastures. And who is the one that makes me lie down in green pastures? The good shepherd. But who is the good shepherd? What does the opening line, Psalm 23, 1 say? The Lord is my shepherd. Jesus says, I'm God. Even a color proves the deity of Christ. Even the color proves the deity of Christ. Green should be your favorite color from now on. <laughs> Just kidding. It doesn't have to be. That's not biblical. But, but the point is, is that think of it this way. God controls the weather. He controls the fertility of the grass so that the scene is perfectly set to announce his son. That's how perfect the life of Christ is. Every blade of grass is set perfectly to announce the deity of his son. That is how much the father loves the son. Well, <clears throat> it goes on from the feeding of the 5,000 to the temptations of Christ. We remember that these trials of Christ, they, they, we typically read them as a model that, that we should follow Christ and how he dealt with temptations, so we should deal with it too. And of course, that is absolutely true. Let me say that again, that is absolutely true, but there's something more to it than this. You see, in the life of David, when he started running away from Saul, his running away from Saul is divided in Hebrew into three sections, into three sections, three sections. And the first one is about how he was tempted about bread. Three sections of David's running away from Saul. And the first one is about his struggle with bread. Where have you heard someone having three temptations, three trials, and the first one dealing with bread? Jesus 
It's not by accident. It's not by accident. The point is, Jesus, will you be like David and you will fall? Or will you be greater than David and what? Prove yourself to be the true king. The trials and temptations of Jesus in Matthew 4 particularly are a demonstration that this is the true king. And he will raise up the tattered ruins of the Davidic dynasty. He will not break and he will not bend. Therefore, he is the true, final, ultimate, fulfilling king of Israel. That is the point of what goes on in Matthew chapter 4 in Matthew chapter four. Well, there's more to it than that. We could talk about the healing of the blind. Jesus in John nine and other places, he heals the blind. Why is that so important? Well, this goes back to the book of Isaiah. This goes back to the book of Isaiah. We know in Isaiah, the problem of Israel is always their sin, but it is sin described in a very specific way. And Isaiah says it this way, they have eyes that cannot see. In fact, that will be repeated throughout Isaiah. In Isaiah 29, it says this, be blind, O Israel, you're blind. And in Isaiah 22, it says this, that Jerusalem is a valley of vision. I think we've heard of that Puritan paperback before, valley of vision. Well, it originates from Isaiah 21 and 22, but God's usage of it is ironic. For being a valley of vision, Jerusalem, you certainly have no vision. You certainly can't see a thing. You're blind. And so always Israel's sinfulness is depicted in Isaiah as they are blind. But for that very reason, it says this, that the Messiah in Isaiah 42, he will give sight to the blind. And why is that important? Because if Israel's problem, the problem that Israel has is that Israel is blind, then the fact that the Messiah can give sight means that he can deal with the problem of Israel. So when Jesus gives sight to the blind, everyone knows that it's an exclusive miracle of the Messiah. Why? Because if you can heal their physical blindness, then you can also heal their what? Spiritual blindness. And that means you can take care of the problem of mankind, the problem of Israel. Jesus healing the blind is an intentional act. It is a supernatural act, and it is a, a theological act of tremendous significance, which proves without a shadow of a doubt, he's the Messiah. He's the Savior. He's the only solution for this world. Well, here's another one. Jesus, and we can kind of close out Jesus' actions with this. He crosses the Sea of Galilee. And you remember the story. He's on the boat and he falls asleep. Where have you heard of someone falling asleep on a boat before? Deep within the ship. Jonah. Jonah. He does that. And actually, if you look between Luke 5 and, the, and Jonah, the wording is highly similar. It, 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 the overlap is amazing. But here's what goes on in Jonah, Jonah falls asleep on the boat in order to run away from God's calling to go to the Gentiles. Jesus falls asleep on the boat in order to go to the Gentiles on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is the greater Jonah. Jesus is the greater Jonah, but it's more to it than that. It's more to it than that. Jonah obviously cannot cause the storm to calm down by talking. The more he talks, the more in trouble he gets. So it's just best to what? Throw him off the boat. That's the best solution. What does Jesus do when he wakes up? He says, what? Be still. And everyone knows, this is not Jonah. This is the God of Jonah. This is the God of Jonah. That is what is clearly indicated at that moment. Here's what you realize. Everything that Jesus does in his life is not unintentional. It's not coincidence. It's not a random. It's not arbitrary. Carefully planned. Perfectly done nothing short of profound. Every place he walks, every place he goes, the timing of it, what is said, what is done, perfect, perfect. 
That is our Lord's life. Well, this isn't just in his life. This is in his death. This is in his death. And we can see that in the timing. Jesus dies during the celebration of Passover. We know that. And we know that Passover is loaded with the theology of deliverance, with even a theology of atonement, if you look in Exodus chapter 12, with a theology of salvation, with the start of freedom in a new life unto God as we are slaves of him. That is what happens in Passover. And Jesus dies there perfectly to communicate that very theology. Well, it's not just the timing, it's also the place. Jesus dies in Jerusalem. And it's significant that he dies in Jerusalem because remember Abraham when he nearly sacrificed Isaac? Do you remember that event? Guess where that happens? Right outside of Jerusalem at a place in the vicinity of Mount Moriah. In fact, Mount Moriah is actually later on in 2 Chronicles 3 located at the temple. That's where it happens. So Jesus dying in Jerusalem is God's ultimate provision. God puts Jesus in the exact right place to die. Not any other place, not any other city, it's there because that's where it would be perfect. And his purpose of his death would be perfected. Well, it's not just Jerusalem, it's also Gethsemane. Gethsemane is located on the Mount of Olives. And this too is important because the Mount of Olives in the Old Testament is always the place where you run away. David ran away from Absalom over the Mount of Olives. Zedekiah ran away from the bad guys, the Babylonians, on the Mount of Olives. So what's the temptation for Jesus? You're on the Mount of Olives, just what? Run away. I mean, no one likes you anyway, and you're going to go back to Jerusalem and die. Every, every king before you has run the other direction. But what does Jesus do? He doesn't run where every, all the other kings ran. He goes back to where? To Jerusalem to die. The place of everything, even his temptation trial in Gethsemane, is perfect. It is perfect. Of course, the Old Testament supplies the central theology of Jesus' death. That's atonement and propitiation. We see that in Isaiah 53. Do you remember that it says in Mark chapter 10 that the son will give his life a ransom for many? You hear that word many? Why is the word many used? Because in Isaiah 53, it's the key word. He will sprinkle many nations. And later on, he will justify the many. By using that word many, Mark reminds us you want to know the, what happens on the cross? You want to know the central theology there? It is Isaiah 53, penal, substitutionary atonement and propitiation. It is for that very reason that at the hour it becomes dark, like the plagues of darkness in Exodus, the ninth plague. God's wrath is poured out on Jesus it is a dark period of time. That's what we see. But it's not just the central areas of theology. Atonement and propitiation reiterated by the Old Testament rooting of the New Testament. It's also ramifications. It's also ramifications of it. For example, it's interesting. Jesus doesn't just quote from the Psalms. He quotes from Lamentations. I don't know if we knew that before, but he actually quotes from Lamentations in those times that he speaks. And this is important. You see, in the book of Lamentations, people are wondering, God, you've judged us. It's like as if you're our enemy. Do you really hate us forever? Are you really one who forsakes us? Are you really one who despises us? Is that who you are to us? Do you not care about us anymore? And what is the point? Jesus says, and God says at this moment, I always cared about you. I never abandoned you. I abandoned my who instead? My son. I always loved you. I always loved you. I never exiled you forever. Rather, I did that to my son in your place. Do you think I don't care? Of course I cared. Look at what I did to my own what? Son. 
The cross becomes the demonstration that God deals with the ramifications of Israel's sin, our disobedience, because our exile and our estrangement from God is not ultimate because he ultimately poured it on his son. Of course he cares. Of course he loves. Jesus' quotations from Lamentations proves that. It also demonstrates that he is the ultimate Davidic king. He's the ultimate Davidic king. You see, Jesus, when he quotes from Psalms, he doesn't just quote from any Psalms. He quotes from Psalms that are about a king, that are about the king. When Jesus goes to the cross then, he doesn't go to the cross as a hapless victim. It's not just that he's abused and despised and rejected and he's some kind of victim. No, he goes to the cross as an act of nobleness. He goes to the cross as a king. He goes to the cross because this is what a true king does for his people. And he goes to the cross and takes it so that he will be their king forever in this and in the end. On top of that, he's not just the perfect Davidic king, but he's actually the second Adam. Do you remember Jesus talking to the thief on the cross and the thief says, remember me when you come in your kingdom? And what does Jesus say? Today, you will be with me in paradise. You remember this. The word paradise in Greek is exclusively used to translate one word in the Old Testament, and that is this word, Eden. Eden. And Jesus says to the thief on the cross, let me tell you what will now happen because I died, because I dealt with sin. We're going to be in Eden. We're going back. And who was responsible for the upkeep of Eden originally? His name was Adam. Adam. And Jesus is the second Adam. If you understand the Old Testament, Jesus' death, it has all of its theology, and you realize it is crafted perfectly, timing, place, and theology. And it's not just Jesus' death, it's Jesus' resurrection. It's Jesus' resurrection. The timing of it, it's on the third day. We know that, and that should remind us of Hosea 6, because God promised that he would raise Israel on the third day. And so Jesus' resurrection isn't just about him. It's about the securing of the resurrection of his people, even Israel, on a national level and individual level. That's why Jesus is raised on that day. And even more, Jesus is raised on Sunday. Why Sunday? Because it's actually the first day of the week. It's a new creation. It's a new creation. God didn't just say, hey, I got to get that three days in there. Well, maybe... Well, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, that works just great. I guess it can fit. No, he did it on purpose. He did it on purpose to send a theological message, the timing of everything in Jesus' life, perfect. And along that line of new creation, that's the theology. Isn't it interesting that the lady who meets Jesus in the garden or in, in, in John 21, she confuses him. She mistakes him to be a what? Gardener. Who was a gardener? Who was the first gardener? Adam. And now we learn Jesus is him. Jesus is him. He is the new Adam who secures everything. That's why even Jesus eats a meal with his disciples because that meal alludes to the fact that Jesus promised that we will eat and drink again when I come in my what? Kingdom. And he's saying that physical bodily act, it will happen again in the future. There will be a new creation. And in fact, just to showcase this transformation upon eating the meal, here's what the text says in Luke chapter 24, that Jesus opened their eyes. Their eyes were opened and they knew him. Their eyes were opened and they knew him. You say, well, so what? What's the big deal about that? Think about Genesis 3 with me for a second. Adam ate the fruit and their eyes were open, and they knew that they were naked. Genesis 3, their eyes were open, and the 
they had the tarnishing of the image of God. In Luke 24, what happens? Their eyes are open and they see not the tarnishing of the image of God, but what? The image of God. Everything is reversed. There will be a new creation after a second Adam. Luke makes that clear. And that's why the place matters. That's why the place matters. You see, Jesus ascends into heaven. Jesus ascends into heaven from where? The Mount of Olives. Because Zechariah prophesies in Zechariah 14 that there will be a day, even though the Mount of Olives was always associated with defeat, that the Messiah would return on the Mount of Olives and would split in two because defeat will be defeated. Defeat will be defeated. And Jesus rises and ascends into heaven from the Mount of Olives and the angels themselves say what? In such a manner, he will what? Return. Because all of that will be fulfilled. All of that expectation of a new creation patterned around the true Adam, who is the one that we are made in his image because he is the image of God. He is God, very God. That is going to happen for sure in the future. It is secured by the fact that Jesus did not flinch and he did not run in Gethsemane, but he went back and therefore we know he will return again on the Mount of Olives, just as he said. Everything in the life of Christ is profound. His resurrection, the timing, theology, and even place of it is profound if you know the Old Testament. Here's what we learn. That's just the tip of the iceberg. We could talk about Jesus' debates with the Sabbath and other miracles he did. We could talk about other sermons he had and other debates that he had with the religious leaders. And upon doing so, here's what we would learn. Jesus does not just have a perfect life in that it is morally perfect. He had a perfect life in that every single moment, in every single detail, in every single situation, in every single setting, the timing, the place, the activity, what is said, what is done, it is perfect. It is perfect. It was perfectly staged by the father to announce who his son is. You could put it this way. If everything is in Jesus' life, every single detail is nothing short of profound. It is profundity upon profundity. And when you have that, it is the perfect life. It is the perfect life. And this is what we see in light of the Old Testament. And this is another reason why the Old Testament should be just so precious to us, should be just so precious to us. Not only does it teach us theology about God and about life, it shows us the beauty of God's son. It shows us the beauty of God's son. The more you know the Old Testament, the more you treasure Christ. And so we need to be those then who not only study Jesus from one part of scripture, but love him enough to study him from all of scripture, to study him from all of scripture. And then we will have the full depth of his beauty, his wonder, and the depth of his perfect life. Thank you for your time.